0: welcome to a living my youth my name is noel fogelman my guest today is actor jesse borrego jesse bursted onto the scene back in the 80s on the tv series fame based upon the movie he came on the fourth season alongside janet jackson he talks about just the attention the tv series brought him and other memorable tv roles for him include playing Gael on the third season of 24 on dexter he played george king the skinner and movie wise He starred in the cult classic Blood In, Blood Out. We talk about that movie, we talk about working with acclaimed director, Taylor Hackford, and just why that movie just didn't resonate to a wider audience. He was also in Con Air. And his latest movie, Phoenix, Oregon, comes out March 20th, we talk about that. The trail looks really good, it's on YouTube, go check it out. Jesse, very insightful, very nice guy, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with him. So uh, so Jesse before we kind of look back I just want to talk about your upcoming movie Phoenix Oregon that comes out March 20th. Um the trailer looks amazing. Uh can you just talk a little bit about the project and how you got involved?
1: Yeah, Gary Lundgren and Annie Lundgren, filmmakers out of Oregon, have a wonderful team down there and you know um the film uh, uh the film office there in Oregon really supports their filmmakers. So, I mean they've been doing beautiful work out of of there for a while. And then they hooked up with uh, a young producer um, named Louis G. And uh, Louis is a a fan of my work. So I think um, in their collaboration with other indie filmmakers, which includes Benjamin Bratt's brother, Peter Bratt, uh, I don't know if you've seen some of his films, but uh, I did a film, Hollywood Pictures film, with Benjamin Bratt uh, back in the The 90s called I Blood Out.
0: Oh, yeah, we'll talk about that.
1: (laughs) Well, because of that, um, his brother got inspired with our collaboration and wound up making a couple of independent films, both of which did really well at Sundance, but they were so ahead of the curve in terms of Latino cinema and diverse cultural cinema, and the themes that they dealt with were a little too much for Hollywood, so they they self-distributed. One is Follow Me Home, and the other one that actually was released on DVD is called La Mision. Well because of that in my collaboration with Peter Brad, he is always um you know passing on the good word in terms of this is an actor that you want to work with. He's got you know he's got the uh he's got the Hollywood uh um you know he's got the mark but he's also definitely uh, uh enjoyable to work with in an in an independent setting which is a little more stressful, you know, not hmm. the budgets aren't big and usually it's you know, down and dirty, grassroots filmmaking. Um, so I think it's uh, for for actors, they have to understand a lot of times that they will do their best work, but it's nothing like a Hollywood set, you know, <laughs> where we get pampered a lot as, as actors, you know. That's the oh, good thing. <laughs> so, so, you know, that's why, uh, uh, but I think actors look for those types of roles and those types of projects. So Gary's a good friend of Peter's. And so when this film came up and he was looking for, for actors to collabor- collaborate with. And like I said, uh, James LeGrowe is a good fil- a friend of theirs, and he'd worked with them before, so he was already on t- on the project. Uh, and so when they came to me, uh, they said, look, we don't have much money, but we have this great project. Would you love to work on it? And as soon as I read the script, I said, of course. Um, this is the kind of stuff that I'm looking for in my career to leave some sort of a legacy. So uh, uh, I think it was easy to say yes and to look at the potential of of what I could do uh, in terms of art and in terms of uh, the work that I could do with them. And then when I got into Oregon and I got to meet Gary and his film crew and Annie and the way they run their sets and the way everybody's just invested uh, in front of the camera and behind the camera, and I just saw this wonderful, in the four weeks that I worked with them, I just saw not only uh, James LeGros' work, but the relationship that he had with these other actors that started coming into the project. And it was because of, of us and working with us that these people just kept dropping into this project. And I just saw this beautiful narrative, uh, you know, and again, as an actor, being a bit of a filmmaker myself, I just saw this, this wonderful um, love project just grow. So, you know, but the, at the end of it all, in these projects, you say, well, another love project that'll never get seen because it's in the indie realm. Right. Uh, and distribution is very difficult these days with all the big Marvel superhero budget. so you know how do you get it out there so that's why two years later it's wonderful to be able to present it to my not only my fans but my friends and to my public so um, that's the love letter to uh, Phoenix Oregon to the people that are, that we work with on it Lisa Edelstein Diedrich Bader Kevin Corrigan and all the oregon filmmakers that uh, uh film uh, the oregon uh, uh actors that helped uh you know bring that world to life you know so
0: right and then for those who haven't seen the trailer it's on youtube it's great it's it's Jesse and James they open up a uh, bowling slash pizza place and uh, the the bowling alley was that was that a functional bowling alley was that just like an abandoned place that you, you guys you know shot in
1: you know, that's the funny part, because even though it's called Phoenix, Oregon, and, and Louis G., the producer, lives there um, in Phoenix, we actually couldn't shoot there because we needed a bowling alley. And okay. the ones in Phoenix are either upscale, or they couldn't accommodate our shooting schedule, because we had right. to have it for two weeks. Um, we found one in Klamath Falls. Okay. Uh, yes. And so... Barry Hansen, Hanson's Bowling Alley, was gracious enough to – and it had that perfect retro look. Right. Uh, and so uh, – and he keeps it in great shape. So it was a wonderful – it's a wonderful place to be able to create the ambiance of, uh you know, the Phoenix Rising Bowling Alley pizzeria that we were trying to create. And again, it's, it's the magic of filmmaking. So it's great at, the, at that budget and with that type of a grassroots artistic investment, you get to see the nuts and bolts of, of how film is made, uh, you know, and the illusion of the narrative that you're trying to create. But it takes a village. And again, hats off to that Oregon filmmaking village. You know, we premiered this film at the Ashland Independent Film Festival, which has a kind of a nice following. Right. Uh, with a couple of other Sundance hits and stuff like that. And the crowd just not only loved it, but it was wonderful to see all of our crew members actually had other films mm-hmm. in the festival itself because it celebrates Oregon filmmakers. And it was wonderful to see them as as directors and as producers on their own. And here they were as, as crew members. Mm-hmm. So it was great to be able to have that saturation of the love, you know, and I think Gary as a, as a director knows this. And I think he's able to, as a writer, producer, and as a director, really take advantage of all that, you know, to tell a great story. And I think that was the best part of it is to be part of a great story. You know, the work, I believe that the work that James LeGros did was worthy of mm-hmm. any kind of a, of a nomination from the industry itself. But I think as actors, we don't do these projects for that because we know that it may never reach that type of saturation uh, and celebration. So we try to really just do what we're doing and what we love to do best, which is act, which is tell a story. And, and the thing that I, I loved about, again, when I jumped, in, I jumped into the project, they'd already been there a week with James filming all the, the deep subconscious uh, montage work of Bobby's character. So... All I had to do was as a professional drop into this other professional artist's vision. Uh, and and that was the joy of it. It wasn't like working on, wasn't like working at all. It was like having fun. Mm -hmm. Um, and and again, I think you'll see a lot of that on the screen. All that love comes across. and, And that's the beautiful thing about something like this. You know, when you see Lisa Edelstein's performance, same thing, you know, she brought the love, she brought the sex appeal to the story. Diedrich drops in, you know, he's got three or four days of work to create right. the character and he just snap on the minute he walks in as a gracious giving actor, just boom. And and you see and you know, we he opens the film. How difficult is it to show up to a set three weeks after people have been filming right. and right. and know that you're gonna open the film and that you better kick it off the right way? But, you know, he you know, he's a he's a star right now on his show right now, a television star. And, you know, Dietrich's been doing it for so many years. Right, right. And I think that was the beautiful thing about Gary's Gary's love is that he, he inspired us as, as actors to come and work with him on this thing and bring it to life. And I think as a, a once he went back and saw what we would given him in production, in post-production as an editor, which is really where he's such a strong director, you know, he really saw all of that. And he was able to just pick and choose and make the movie that he wanted to, you know? Same thing with Kevin Corrigan. I mean, Kevin drops in at the end of the shoot, you know, when we didn't even know who was gonna play that Al character. And Again, same thing, he ends the film. So he's gotta end it with us and bring such a strong character to it. And he just dropped in like nothing, you know, like butter. And these guys are so gracious as human beings. So to be able to work with them, and to create with them was, ugh, that's the pinnacle of it. You know, it's the perfect, it's the perfect storm. So again, the fact that it's able to come out and people are going to watch it, ugh, it's the, again the trailer is an inkling of the of the joy of this narrative in this film. You know.
0: Right. Yeah. No, I definitely look forward to seeing. It. Now, now speaking of like, you know, the long process of getting it out there. Was there ever like, because now you know, there's so many streaming sites and video on demand. Was that ever like the main option or you know, wanted like kind of like a theatrical release for the movie?
1: Well, you know, uh, I've been in this business over 30 years, you know, and so I've seen the change, not only of the technology, right? But as an actor, the impact that it has on the industry itself as an actor trying to make a living. So we've seen cable, we've seen pay-per-view, right? We mm-hmm. saw the rise of, I was there when home box office kicked off and VHS mm-hmm. became the thing. I saw the complete change in technology from VHS to digital and how it went from, you know, $900 million to $17 billion. And the impact that it had on us as, you know, as laborers in the industry. So on the other side of it, as a, as an artist, I saw the, the potential, or rather, the limitations for any type of independent work that we wanted to do. That's one of the things that happened to Peter Brad. Is early on in his career there was no DVD. So that first film that I did with him, uh, Benjamin Bratt, uh Salma Hayek uh the, the, the stars that were in that first independent film never got seen. You know, they they got lost in that in that world of trying to get a theatrical release. Well years later fifteen years later when he did La Mision, we had the same challenge, but we had social media, we had Facebook, and so without any money spent on television ads, we were able to we were able to share uh a, a you know the trailer and really get people to come out to the very limited theatrical release and so by the time they went to a video and now it's streaming and all that they're solid the project belongs to them and I'm pretty sure they've gotten close to paying their investors back so from now on and they control the continued release of that mm-hmm. film forever and ever and ever so when I made the, when I was working on this film I knew that somewhere in the world, this was, this film was going to get seen, you know. And at first, you know, they were trying to get into the festivals, but it's so saturated now that this type of film, which is really a feel good film, you know, it's about, you know, this man going through his midlife crisis and how it takes his friend going through the same thing, his friends going through the same thing, you know, to realize, uh, you know, how special life is at any age. And that you can accomplish your dreams. You just have to believe in them a little bit. You know, we all need that right now in the here and now. But because it didn't have that really controversial subject matter, uh, it, it, it wasn't fodder for the festivals, you know, and it didn't have the big political backing of the studio or anything like that. So I think in that sense... Uh, there was a, a, a sense of, oh, this is never going to get seen because it didn't get into any major festivals. But I said, look, 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 a few years back, the digital age was starting and the ability to promote your film in that digital realm, in that Facebook group realm, you know, it really worked for us. And this was several years ago, 2010, when La Mission came out. So I think if you guys follow that and just find some way to keep putting it out there, uh, you can get the numerics and you can start this kind of movement where people want to see the film and now you have ways to get it to them so many different ways and it doesn't necessarily have to be theatrical. So I knew that there could be life after death for any type of indie film. So I wasn't as worried about that as probably the filmmakers were and you do have to have a strategy for for doing that and and give it to the the filmmakers. uh, Annie and Gary and their uh, filmmaking partners, producing partners decided to, with that type of, uh, inspirational thought, decided to rent an RV, wrap it, a couple of RVs, wrap it with the poster with all of our pictures on it, the poster of the movie, drive across the country to as many venues as they could over the course of four or five months and show this film anywhere they could. And God bless them if they didn't get the numerics to Say to a distributor, hey, there might be legs on this thing. And not only that, but it's got the pedigree. It's got the Hollywood pedigree. James LeGrow, Jesse Borrego, Lisa Edelstein, Diedrich Bader, Kevin Corrigan. We can sell this puppy uh, mm-hmm. in ways that we've done before with other indie films. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that, that, again, is that labor of love that I, I, I knew could happen. I, I just didn't know how, but I knew that it could. So I think the playing field is is uh, you know for those that can can weather the storm and go through two years of agonizing how to do that two, three years, they can get any good film out that that, that they can produce, uh, you know especially when i you know, it's got these types of of performers in it and these types of storylines, you know and of
0: course, you know you're a professional actor, so you you get immense in the role, so. You know, bowling and pizza, I would imagine you would have some sort of background, at least a little bit of bowling, you know, casually and then, you know, eating pizza or actually making pizza, right?
1: <laughs> no, never believe actors when they say they can do things. Man. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but always remember that an actor is going to say, yes, I can do that. <laughs>
0: And then learn when you don't.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I come from the theater, man. So in the theater, it's all illusion. So you don't have to know anything. You just have to figure out how to make people believe that your character knows how to do that. So, you know, for years, people have thought, even though I'm musically inclined, you know, I started on that television show, Fame. Right. right. On, you know, on fame, they were always coming up with new ways to show that your actor, your your character was multi-talented. So I had to play the guitar, I had to tap dance, I had to do a lot of things that I really didn't know specifically how to do. But you know, I I was a dancer, I was a singer, so I was musically inclined. So, and I was an actor. So it's all about making the illusion work. In all of my uh, the roles that I played, you know, in Blood In, Blood Out, I was a painter, and I you know, I don't we laugh about it because I hang out with the artists all the time, and I can't even draw stick figures. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the 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 art of mimicry, the art of mime, and the art of being able to tell a story, I could absorb. You know, actors love to do things because then they absorb the mannerisms of the illusion. Of mastery and, and that's really the skill that we learn in college and that we learn um, uh, uh, that that we have the talent for uh, and that's why we do it because we're we're mimics you know we can make believe that anything is happening killing zombies uh, you know being the president all of those different things. Uh, and so for me the challenge was uh, how do I how do I make people believe that I'm a master chef first of all that's easy but how about this particular style uh, of 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 uh, of, of pizza? And there's a very specific hand gesture that they roll out the dough with. It's very particular. And uh, Gary kept sending me YouTube tutorials, and I just kept and I kept practicing and practicing. <laughs> Man, this is tough. You know, how am I how am I going to do this? I started stressing out a little on it. And then while I was getting ready to fly over there, and I had been working on a couple of other projects before that, so I didn't have as much time as I wanted to, to to work on that part of it, you know, other than to get the script and get the the you know, these scenes were very extensive, the scenes that he had with me and James. And so I really it's uh you know, I wanted I wanted the language to be good, even if I elaborated on it, which directors love. For me to do to to give it more of the feel of being Latino or cultural or or well-rounded, um, uh, directors always trust me with their text, but I wanted to be specific to his dialogue because it was it was beautiful. The scenes were were well-written, um, and I wanted to make sure that when me and James got together, it was like it was like butter, like we'd been friends for years. And so as I was absorbing all of that, I, I didn't have as much time to work on the mannerisms of that particular style of dough rolling, even though I've been practicing and practicing. It's just just a skill that it takes a lifetime to master. And so as I'm flying over there, I'm starting to panic a little, like, man, when it gets to the chef scenes, that's when I'm going to feel hinky. (laughs) And I know there's going to be a montage. It's written in the script. (laughs) (laughs) If there's a montage of me rolling out the dough, and I'm like, oh. So as I get there, as I'm flying over there, I had an epiphany, and it was because of the work that I'd done in, on fame as a guitar player. I had to learn a little piece. Uh, you know, every role that I'd done had something that I wasn't necessarily a master of that my character was. So at that's the point when I had the epiphany in the sky flying over there, and I went, you dummy, you don't have to learn how to make pizza. You just have to make them believe and you have to look like, you know how to make. And I went, of course. And so when I got there, the collaborative part of of filmmaking and acting came through and and I went to my director and I said, look, you know, I'm a little uncomfortable about this. So just make sure that you cover me. And he went, no problem, I got you. And the first take that we did of that stuff he came over to me and he said, you know what, Jess, it looks like you know what the hell you're doing. He goes, so don't worry about it. And at that point, you know, my inner my inner actor let a big let a big sigh of relief. And the rest was gravy. Uh, and I think sometimes that's the part that I really, you know, Peter Bratt, again, it's appropriate that Peter referred me to Gary because he's that type of director as well. Uh, Benjamin Bratt is that type of actor. James LeGros is that type of actor. You know, these guys, you know, I would give my right arm for because those are the types of artists they are. They understand the collaborative part of film, of acting, of storytelling, of narrative. And, uh, I've been so lucky in my career to have, um, worked with people like that. You know, Taylor Hatford. Right. Officer and a gentleman, Academy Award winning, and I'm going, oh my God. But Taylor never talked down to me. If anything, Taylor was like, you're the Chicano in this narrative, so I need you to keep us all on point. You know, so that to me is, is, is filmmaking. That, that to me is what I take away from my career is, you know, Debbie Allen was my first big time director. She had just started to direct. So not only was she choreographing me, not only was she producing me, but she was directing at that time, because she just started, you know, really directing the episodes. And, And there I was, and I wanted to learn. It was my first experience on a film set coming from the theater. And she would just, she was just so giving and loving. And she just kept, you know, inviting me. She'd invite me to the set when I wasn't working. And she'd say, I'm going to do this. This is a two shot. This is a close up. And so this is a camera movement. You know, what would you do here? And so not only as a friend, but as a collaborator, she just gave and gave and gave. And I've been so lucky to have worked with some of the best in the business right now that are still doing it. It's still very, you know, I started with Don Cheadle. You know, I was one of his acting partners. So now Don is producing and directing on his own. So to be able to watch that work and know that we were together at a time when they were so giving of their art. It's just, you know, it's just when I do projects like Phoenix, Oregon, um, it just makes me want to give it back in some way to my fellow artists. So people always ask, you know, at your level, how are you so giving to people? And I tell them because we're all in this together. So to tell this story, uh, which is a story you hope that if you're there as an artist, you want to tell, you want to share in the glory of them, that. You're going to give your all to make sure that that's well rounded. You know, when uh, Gary was, uh, when we were getting ready to finish this film as a filmmaker, you know, uh, I saw Gary as a director being crunched because you've only got so much money, you've only got so much time, and you've still got an enormous amount of stuff to do. It's always like that. That's how it is. But I knew that we not only were we going to get in under the wire, but that once he took a deep breath and he let all the stress of production go and he had all of this gold in front of him and that he was going to fashion the best, you know, jewelry piece made out of gold that he could that was Phoenix, Oregon. So I said, look, once you take a deep breath and you get you get past all the you know, all the tiredness of production, you know you're gonna sit down with this baby and you're gonna see what all of these actors gave you and you are going to be so proud and you're gonna be able to make the movie that you can because I, I know that's the process. And he called me six months later and he was like, wow, he goes, how did you know? And I just said, because I'm a, you know, not only am I an actor, but I've gone through the process. I'm a filmmaker now too. I'm a film student. And so I understand the process of not only theatrical production, but film production and any type of production where it takes a collaboration between artists to tell a story. In a lot of the workshops that I do with young actors, young filmmakers, you know, we talk about uh, what is your narrative? You know, what is your story? and uh, how are you going to tell that story in a way that impacts society you know uh and that's the magic of what we do you know so i, I you know i really felt that phoenix Oregon going to accomplish that and so i wanted it to get out there you know
0: right now you know you know speaking of working with young actors you know way back when when you were a young act trying to get into the business what was like the motivation for you to actually get into the business
1: well at that time it was all um uh, you know what do they call that? Um, it was all just uh, that type of youthful vigor. Right. You want to succeed. You know. Uh, I came from uh, a humble background. Uh, you know, as a as a Chicano in the uh, '60s and '70s, and my father was an accomplished musician, Jesse Borrego Sr., well known in the uh, early Tex-Mex uh music circles here. And so I grew up watching him, listening to his music. Um, and my grandmother, who was uh raised playing music, singing music, she was a big um, you know, she was a big cultural teacher and she taught us a lot about not only our culture as Mexican Americans, but a kind of a cultural pride uh in who we were, uh, and it was always rooted in music storytelling, dancing, and so for me, my brother, and my sister, we kind of grew up in that type of uh, musical uh, milieu, and it just kind of faded into us as we were young kids in school, so we were always in choir, you know, my sister was in choir in elementary school, and we quickly became, when I got into school, I was one year uh, younger than her, when we got into school, the choir teacher immediately saw a tandem that she could take advantage of, so we were always doing the, the, you know, the shows, we did, uh, you know, we would do Mary Poppins every year for four or five years elementary <laughs> school with my sister being Mary Pop- Poppins and me being Bert, you know. We were just those kids uh, and we got that at home. But, you know, the reality of growing up in the 60s and 70s as Mexican-Americans, it was tough. You know, not only economically, but culturally. You weren't represented in, in the education system. You weren't represented in the narrative. Uh, especially not in American cinema and, uh, you know, television. And so we grew up, that was the, we were the beginning of the television age. So my generation was nothing but television, but we did not see ourselves represented. So once I realized that there was a disconnect and I saw myself as kind of having that responsibility of being that guy, uh, also realizing that all around me, there was a subculture of those guys. My father was one of those with what he was doing with his music. You know, uh, my sister was always in drama, was always, you know, triple letter sports, was always at the top of the edge. And she was, you know, actually uh, scholastically triple A. So she was uh, an overachiever in that sense. And, and she was always kind of my... My, uh, you know, my litmus test. Uh, even though I did it more only in the, uh, uh, you know, in the artistic realm. Um, so I think for us, it was a matter of responsibility to do those things. All of that to say that once I got out of high school, which is really just being in drama club. That's the only way that you can fulfill uh, that particular. Uh, um, you know, need, because there was no after school programs for arts. There was no cultural programs for cultural narrative, um, which is, think about it. That's what I've made my living on as an actor. You know, I've made my living off of the cultural narrative. I've been very lucky to have done that at a time when The industry wasn't necessarily supporting that. And yet I've been able to do that, not only in theater, but in film, American film and television, very difficult to do uh, without getting stereotyped, cliched, you know, put into a situation where you don't work a lot. So I think for me, growing up that way, I always look back and question and go, wow, how was I able to do that? So getting into college, when I got into college... For me, it just opened up a whole new world of possibilities. Again, the same challenge. Once I got into college, I saw that we were learning O'Neill, Ibsen, Shakespeare, you know, the Greeks, uh, the Greek tragedies. But where was I? Where were the Chicanos? Where were the Mexican-Americans? Where were the bilingual theater pieces? I wasn't seeing it there, even though I was seeing it, in my cultural centers, so I was growing up with those people. I just wasn't necessarily a part of them. When I became a young actor, then I started kind of dipping into that other world, which were the, the Chicano uh, teatristas, you know, the people, the active. And at that time, uh, Chicano theater was very uh, was very activist, so it was very, uh, you know, very rooted in the '60s kind of Chicano movement, politicized, you know. So I was getting these two different aspects of what I could do and I was already bilingual. So, you know, it was a, it was a wonderful time to be a young actor, you know, especially in San Antonio. And so, uh, it it was, to me, it was just another part of what I could do with what I was doing. And I never got hung up on not enough of this or not enough of that. If I saw a need or if I saw a want, The answer was always there. Um, Like I said, once I realized that I wasn't necessarily being represented in the education system, I knew that I could play those parts. So when I was playing Orestes in the Incarnate Word production of the Oresteia, Greek tragedies, Mm -hmm. guess what? It was young Jesse Borrego playing that part. I wasn't trying to be Greek. I wasn't trying to sound like you know, someone with a, an Anglo-Shakespearean accent, it was me. Uh, and so I took that skill with me all the way through my career when I've been really able to infuse uh, uh, the universality of who we are as human beings and yet be very specific to what the cal- cultural narrative is, you know, which is necessary in these times, you know?
0: Yeah, Absolutely absolutely yeah. now uh when, when fame came around you know obviously the movie was you know was a huge huge hit it was you know well received it was it was great uh yeah, was they, fan. and then they have it you know a tv show which usually when they have a tv show based on a movie it doesn't really fare that well but the tv show lasted seven years and it was well received it was good as well you came on for the final three seasons i believe also with janet jackson um what, what was like, you mentioned a little bit about, you know, working with Debbie Allen. Uh, just what was that experience like just your whole time on fame?
1: Well, you gotta, you gotta uh, consider that what I just explained to you was a very grassroots, right? you know, culturally rooted art is everything, you know, education wrapped up in it. And from there, I want to make myself a better, deeper actor. So I have a buddy who, winds up going to Juilliard, and I decide I want to go to acting rep program. And I wind up at California Institute of the Arts, which is, again, uber artistic. You know, uh, the message is everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. And six months later, I'm on a hit television show, Emmy Award winning, next to Janet Jackson on one side, Debbie Allen on the other, with the pedigree of these people that I've been watching for years, you know, Valerie Landsberg, Carlo Imperato, you know, and I'm just going, oh my God, it it was, it was a surreal dream. It was a surreal dream. And the only thing that kept me rooted was two things, uh, actually three things. One, the fact that I loved the work. So all it was for me was again another challenge as an artist into how to do and the possibilities of what I could do with with what I could do as an actor as a performer all of that right to the cultural narrative the fact that my character was based on me we had we were, I was involved in the probably the first American idol type of audition uh, it was an open call they were bill blinn who was the creator of uh you know the television show fame right and debbie right. allen and ken Ehrlich. Uh, uh uh ken Ehrlich, big you know Ehrlich musical productions ken Ehrlich does the hugest musical concerts you know in the history of hollywood but uh those three producers decided they were going to have a kind of uh Uh, I guess like a promotional marketing gimmick and they were going to put it out there and say, we're going to find the next, you know, new kid off the street, new kid on the block, and we're going to have an open audition. So, you know, about 4,000 people auditioned in New York, uh, about 3,000 auditioned that day that I went to the MGM lot. uh, And and remember, I grew up on all those musicals, Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire, uh, uh, they were all filmed there Mm -hmm. at MGM in rehearsal hall A where I wound up dancing for the next 3 years so I grew up on all this stuff so I'm going oh my god I can't believe that I'm here but we audition and then another you know 5 6000 people auditioned through agents even though they they claimed to be looking for the next undiscovered person you know they were hedging their bets i mean you can't tell me that janet jackson was uh, discovered <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> so you know uh and out of that lot out of that audition they got uh janet jackson Nia peoples who already had an agent and right. and me so they found me in la because i was i was at cal arts i was at california institute of the arts uh and i auditioned with the lot in la and in actuality uh they lost the picture that I had. It wasn't very, the technology wasn't very sophisticated at that time and right. I didn't have much money. So I think I had, uh, maybe a, uh, a, you know, a photocopy of a picture. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, the only address I had was I was a student at Cal Arts. So somehow or other my information got lost and they had taken a Polaroid of all of us. And in that audition, they realized that they had written great notes about me and they were looking for me, but all they had was this Polaroid and a name. Right. They had no contact. So, you know, I went back to Cal arts and over the next two, three weeks, people were getting called back and I was at an art school. California Institute of the arts has an incredible dance program, music program, art program, acting program. So pretty much everybody in school went to the audition. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So all of us were there. Um, and everyone got called back at one point or the other, but they wound up uh, narrowing it down. And, you know, after a while, it trickled down. I never got called back. And I said, wait a minute, how did everyone, you know, it was a it was a come to Jesus moment where I thought, wow, am I really as skilled as I think I am? Am I, so am I really <laughs> as talented as I think I am? <laughs> <laughs> everyone got called back with me. So after about a week of the hubbub dying down, because remember, at an art school, This was the golden ticket, right? Hello, you go from art school to being a star in a television show. That was the golden goose. So we were we were for a second there. We were all kind of titillated by the idea that we were going to make it like that, like we had always dreamed of. So it kind of, you know, the hubbub died down. And I was working on a project and someone came up to me and said, hey, I saw you on television last night. And I hadn't done much television. I did a couple of local promotional spots here in Texas, but I said, why would they be showing in San Diego? I mean, in LA. And then they went, Oh yeah. Something about that. The producers from fame were looking for. you." And time at that time, I thought, what a cruel joke. This guy is being, (laughs) he's being mean and he's rubbing my face in it. Right. Cause I didn't get called back. So I had words with him, you know, uh, and, you know, then somebody else came and said, hey, someone from the theater school, I think uh, the, the secretary said, she saw you. And so that next day, uh, my good friend, uh, John Agolia, who wound up becoming a producer in the in the industry, was my roommate at that time. And he called MGM and called the casting directors and said, "My, that's my roommate. And he's the one who wound up uh, getting me connected with him. It was a hilarious story because I think, wow two degrees of separation and I never would have had a career at least that way. Right. And, and sure enough, once the, the casting directors found me and the producers found me, I auditioned for them. Uh, and, and it was a no brainer. I wound up going through and gaining a role there. But just the fact that from there, a few months later, I'm in LA and I'm in New York on the streets of New York, filming with Janet Jackson and, We're in concert, because the first thing we did was not an episode of Fame, but actually the big Heart of Rock and Roll concert uh, that wound up airing. It was a live special of Fame special, but it's called the Heart of Rock and Roll, and it's a two-parter that we did at Howard Beach, at Jones Beach there in New York. Right. Yeah, I've I've been
0: there plenty of times. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I was introduced to 2,000 fans, and I was an immediate overnight Star because the show had that kind of a stardom. So it didn't matter whether they'd seen me or not. All they knew was me, Nia, and Janet were the new kids. Yeah. So it, you know what I'm saying? So it's kind of surreal because I kept thinking, wait a minute. They haven't even seen my work. They don't even know who I am. Why are they asking for my autograph? Why are they thronging for me? Why are they? And so it was just such an interesting understanding of, of that potential, you know? So I found myself, I think in a moment of crisis, because all of the sudden I started thinking, man, so what does it matter what I do, whether I do a great performance or not? The masses love you because of celebrity appeal. So I had a moment where I had to kind of like, well, that doesn't matter. You know, what matters is what you do. So then, again, you keep going back to who are you as an artist and what do you want to say? And so then what do you do with your skill set? And that's where the third thing that kept me grounded came. And that was, again, my home, how I'd been brought up, my grandmother, her teachings, you know, the music of my father, you know, the cultural upbringing of my mother. And so those... Those things, I kept coming back to, all right, this is who I am, and no matter what type of stardom I achieve, no matter what type of celebrity appeal, I have to be true to that. And so then I think in that sense, any performance had that germ in it. Um, when we got back to L.A. after that incredible New York trip, where, you know, again, like I told you, I went from being an unknown right. to an overnight I couldn't even walk the streets of New York. You know that that type of mentality is 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 very, is, is very, um, how should I say, it? impactful on a young artist. And, and I see how a lot of them get derailed from what their original intention was. You know, um, and so I think for me, I've always had to keep coming back to this. No matter what the success is, I have to keep coming back to uh is it true to the narrative? Is it true to the humanity of uh, what I want my wo- body of work to represent? Um, and again, I look back and just doing the work it sometimes is enough. Because when you look back and you see the people you collaborated with, then you see how wonderful that is. You know, those three years were wonderful. I didn't realize them until later. At right. that time, I was just doing it. You know, now we're doing these uh, fame reunion tours in Europe. They're huge. We just did a big one in Liverpool. Uh, and so getting back together with not only the cast members, but actually some of the other cast members that were gone by the time I got there. But I've been working with them in these reunion shows. So working with them as artists, working with them as human beings. ugh, oh, I just go, oh, my God. Now I understand why people love fame so much, because over the seven years, all these people that came through gave their love to the project, to the School of the Arts, to that idea. Uh, and, you know, this music is inspirational. The people that wrote a lot of that music that we wound up performing, I mean, those songs are inspirational. You know, I Still Believe in Me, uh, uh, you know, Star Maker, um, you know, on and on the songs that we sang. Um, what Am I to Be? And so to relive them as an older man, you know, at, at 57 years old, and I think, wow, at 22, I just didn't realize right. what an enormous, incredible thing I was a part of, even though I knew, even though I was there in the moment and I appreciated it there, I was ready to move on to the next thing. You know, I was like, well, where am I going to go from here? Yeah. <sighs> yeah.
0: And, and a couple of years later, you uh, you got the role in Blood In, Blood Out. You mentioned Taylor Hackard before, you know, amazing director and that movie i feel it's kind of like a lost classic because you don't really hear anything about it really anymore and it's not like really on the streaming sites or anything like that and it's it's a fantastic movie that really deserves a wider audience
1: oh not only because uh you know taylor Hackford is such an incredible uh not only an incredible producer remember he produced la bamba right yeah so he knows what he's doing, but you know, as a director, come on, Academy Award-winning officer and a gentleman, credible flick, you know, Devil's Advocate against all odds, yeah, on and on and on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, so you know, Taylor is uh, an accomplished master, you know, uh, as an artist. And so I think it was a lot of people don't realize he directed that film. And I think that's why not only the performances and the subject matter, but the impact of what he did as a filmmaker. But the fact that he really collaborated with some incredible people, Jimmy Santiago Baca, who wrote the script and executive produced it, you know, he's winning literary awards every other month. He's just as a writer, he's at the top of his game and he's been doing it for over 20 some odd years. So that film itself, you know, Hollywood Pictures put a lot into it and it was supposed to win awards. It was way ahead of the Latino curve, but it was also gonna be impactful uh, as a subject matter. And you know, a lot of people were doing it at that time. You know, Edward James Almost had American Me and you know, they had just done La Bamba, which is still one of the highest grossing Latino films. And so I think there was a an understanding of an untold narrative that had an audience, you know, that had a filmmaking audience. So I think I knew because I had just come off of, like I said, I had just come off of the the stardom of fame. So I knew, uh, and I'd been doing a lot of theater at that time. I was working a lot with uh, Joanne Akalaitis, you know, who was a, a Mabu Minds fame, but I'd been working with her for about five years, and the stuff that, she was, that I was doing with her was incredible, and she was giving me a chance as a Chicano-Mexican-American actor to play the lead in a lot of these incredible theater productions, you know? So I was at the top of my game when Taylor came to me and said, let's do blood and blood out. Uh, So I was about, uh, and he said, let's go find, you know, you have to do this film. Not only do you have to do this film, Jimmy Baca wrote it, but you have to help me find uh, the other two guys. And I said, let's do it. So again, not only as an actor, but as a filmmaker, Taylor is including me in the whole casting process, the whole production process. Right. We're looking for the Chicano artist who's going to, you know, and I grew up with Chicano art because San Antonio is well known as one of the roots of Chicano art, you know? Uh, and so even though the story was set in LA and LA has an incre- Los, Los Angeles has an incredible history of Chicano art and art movements, uh, you know, at that time it was universal. They were already, you know, you're talking about a hundred years of, 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 of indigenous Latino Mexican-American art uh, sure. with Chicano being a subculture of that. And so to me, I'd grown up with all of that. So I was like, oh my God, to actually celebrate a character like this, you know, like my father, uh, Chicanos who labor with cultural art And never get to see the light of day and to represent this in this type of a tough urban narrative. You know, I just, again, as an actor and as a storyteller of my people, I knew the potential. So to be included at the beginning by, you know, Academy Award winning Taylor Ackman, I was like, oh, my God, what an opportunity. So I really dove into it and I said, okay, I'm going to give you my best now. What do you need? Let's test these guys out. You know, anybody who comes in is going to have to get through the Jesse Borrego gauntlet. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, in terms of being an actor. So if you're an actor and you're going to, you're going to back it up. And if you're going to, you know, be culturally specific and, and, and be true to the story, then you better come in with your chops. You know, Benjamin Bratt, come on, give me a break. The minute Benjamin came in and he was raised, uh, even though he's, a, a Peruvian, um, you know, his mother's extremely bilingual. She's very indigenous, and she raised them there in the Mission District. And in the Mission District, they grew up with some of the, the, the first car clubs of the Bay Area. So they grew up with these Chicano guys, veteranos, the as their heroes. So he knew, he knew the guys. So it was easy for him as a, as a classically trained actor to be able to, you know, and, and and again, in collaboration, he comes to me. You know, Benjamin is one of the understated let me know, actor, talents of our, of our time. And he came to me and he goes, hey, man, I want to do a good job. So I already know what I'm going to do with the character arc of the character, but I want to be true to, you know, what we're doing as, uh, you know, as Urban Brothers. So let's figure this out. So he was a student and he just got down on it. And again, the collaborative process of working on these things is my favorite part. You know, that that that's where I really have fun. I grew up in the theater, which is nothing but a collaborative process. Right. Doing ensemble theater, choreo theater, where you, know, you are one part of an enormous montage of, 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 what, of what's being shown. You know? uh, and you give it freely because that's what you do with the theater. So to, to, to uh, transfer that onto collaborating on film was a joy. Um, once we found the other actor, we just had a blast actually living in the East LA barrio and and you know getting to know these guys the real dudes from the street and getting to know these families and and trying to bring humanity to their story you know and what we were and the narrative we were going to tell so uh, and again you can't do that if someone like Taylor doesn't facilitate you uh if if he doesn't have the production design team that he had the problem with that film is that was it was one, uh, way ahead of its time, and we got caught in a time when Los Angeles was going through an upheaval. And the riots happened. The year we were supposed to come out, the riots happened. Right. So you understand that if L.A. gets burned to the ground, uh, no studio is going to promote a film that has that type of a deep urban narrative. And so I think at that point, you know, uh, studios, which are really very conservative. Uh, they backed off of it and it could have won awards. And at this point, I think that over the last 27 years, they've made their money back many times over. So even though in their books, it's considered a, you know, $30 million flop, uh, because it was released, uh, as bound by honor. So it actually has two names, which is very bizarre. Uh, so it was released as Bound by Honor deliberately so that, you know, the Blood and Blood Out title, which is, you know, very provocative, wouldn't impact anything. Um, it was released that later year, you know, 92, 93 after the riots, uh, within those six months, and uh, it didn't do very well. When it went to pay-per-view, when it went to uh, VHS, they changed the name back to Blood and Blood Out, and which is what we'd been promoting it for three years. Uh, right. pre- this kind of thing while we were making it and the audience got back behind it and when it went to dvd and uh, Taylor's director's cut came out oh my god it's you know i'm pretty sure it's it's made them a billion dollars don't <laughs> me on that but i bet you day it's i bet you it's close over 27 years uh and it's still a top seller and it doesn't even strain it doesn't even stream, but on YouTube, look at the likes that uh, the scenes get on YouTube. There's been memes that have been created over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the images from the film has been, has proliferated. Uh, you know, I'm able to promote uh, the art, uh, Adán Hernández, which is the Chicano artist who wound up doing the art for my character, Cruz. You know, Ch- uh, uh, Chich Marin has several of, of, of his art in his collection. But the collection itself, which is over 25 years old, those 50 images from the film are so well known that, uh, you know, they've been, they've become a, a masterpiece collection unto themselves. You know, and, and, and Disney Hollywood Pictures owns a couple of those masterpieces. So I hope they realize that they own very valuable Chicano art that at this point is quite valuable. So think about it. And, you know, they knew what they were doing, so <laughs>
0: yeah, <right. laughs>
1: they had. But at that point, you know, it, it didn't fit their premature what they wanted to present as a studio, so they pulled back from it. Uh, but it didn't stop the passion. It didn't stop the artistry. And that's what I attribute to the, to its cult-like success, is that everything that me, Taylor, Jimmy, uh, Benjamin, um, you know, uh, Bruno Reveo, uh, the production designer – uh, you know, uh, all of these people that collaborated. The neighborhood of East L.A., which rolled over backwards for us, you know, all those people that helped us, uh, you know, we used a lot of the kids from the neighborhood, you know, to help us out, you know, to, you know, to, try, to try to show them that even though we were representing this, there was another way of life and that it was storytelling. It was, you know, film production. You know, we had one of the uh, cast security which was a bunch of – it was a a couple of uh, Mexican-American, you know, former police officers and actually uh, uh, ex-gang members who had gotten out. You know, they collaborated to create a a security system that could protect any production that happened in the East L.A. area because they knew the neighborhoods. They knew the people. And not only that, but they could interface with them in a much better way. Cast Security became huge on that show. You know, now Cast Security – you know, runs a lot of the security in LA proper itself because of the strength of, of of their reputation. But at that time, you know, there was opportunities that were just starting out for uh, uh, people that wanted to be involved in the Latino industry. And so I think when I look back at that, and I realize that that uh, you know, the neighborhood of East LA itself, you know, the gente of East Los, all those people contributed to the, to the success of that film. And I just want to give them my love. You know, there was a family that I stayed with because after we did the young, the stuff where the guys were young and we got into the later years, uh, I wanted to stay in the neighborhood. You know, as an actor, I said, wait a minute, Cruz never left the neighborhood. So I'm not going to stay in a hotel in Beverly Hills and travel every day to East L.A., To play a guy that never left L.A. I go, why don't you get... I've been living with this... We've been living with this family. Why don't you just give them the budget for the hotel? You help them out. I stay in the neighborhood. I stay in the game. You know, I stay in character. And I'm minutes away from any of the sets we're going to shoot on. You know, also... Just for me saying, let me, let me be here, but living with that family that I lived with, that beautiful family, they took care of me. You know, the mother, would, you know, mama would feed me. The, the brothers let me stay in their room. You know, I shared life with this East L.A. family. This and, and, and so for me as an actor, those are experiences that I can never, you know, never, ever forget. And I, I hope they realize that the success of any endeavor like that, and especially a film like Blood and Blood Out, you know it's it they that they are a part of that you know and, and that i appreciate that not only as a as a, a filmmaker but as an actor you know right
0: yeah everyone check check it out cuz like you said it's on youtube and the you know dvd is still out there cuz it's you know very underrated and very it's it's a fantastic movie it really is but i, I have two more roles i have to ask you about they're both television roles uh first guy Allen 24 you know season 3 um which, you know, the first two seasons, you know, had like, you know, Moles and CTU where you kind of had it flipped the other way where you played a double agent. I love that. Yeah. How much fun was was that role? And how far in advance did you actually know Kyle's story?
1: You know, the tough thing about what I've done on television is that at a certain point, especially after Blood In, Blood Out, you know, I realized it was still close to my success on Fame. Right. So I knew that I had young fans. Especially when I knew that blood and blood out in later years was going to retain that type of a generational thing, where people were going to share it with their families, with their kids, stuff like that, right? So, for me, I kept going, oh, "What do I, you know, do I audition for every, you know, in television, you know, series television? It's a lot of detective stories, and usually in detective stories, we're kind of." You know, you know who we are. We're the bad guys. We're the dark guys. We're the, we're the, you know, the, the plot device, which is how heinous and villainous can that character be? And so one, I'm I'm not an ugly character actor like that. And two, that's not the character that I wanted to show my fans, you know, at that time, you know, it was the mid nineties, the early nineties. So there was still the perception that we were the street element, you know? And so I was kind of like, eh, unless you're telling me a real perspective on that narrative, I don't necessarily vibe that part. So I started to turn down auditions. Uh, at that time, it, it it kind of backfired on me because that was really the only type of characters they were writing for Latinos, you know? <laughs> Even Though Andy Garcia and these guys were trying to break the mold and they were doing other stuff, I wasn't at that level. And again, without the success of Blood and Blood Out, which probably would have put me in that discussion, I kind of was back to, who are you? What have you done lately? And so me kind of turning away roles because I had an issue with the perception of what those characters were, like I said, it kind of backfired on me and I wasn't getting enough auditions. Fast forward to something like Gael, where... I was kind of realizing, hey, I gotta make a living, you know, uh doing theater and doing this other stuff. Now that I've got a child and I'm living in LA, not living as a Bohemian artist where I was before, I can't I, I can't necessarily live off the scraps that I get while waiting for a, a juicy role. Um so at that point I had to look at auditioning for everything that came down. Unfortunately a lot of these uh characters were the same. So when I got to uh, auditioning for 24, I was like, eh, you know, I probably I probably turned down a couple of auditions already. But at this point, I went, hey, you know what? Let me just audition for the casting director so they remember who I am. Right. You know? mm-hmm. And maybe they'll keep me in mind for the lawyer, the the mm-hmm. brother. the Yeah, something that I can get my teeth behind, get a check and not feel horrible about is some young fan going to watch this and go, you know, look at Jesse Grego playing the, the the drug dealer again, you know? And again, it's my own personal thing, right? Because I have actor friends that do it all the time and God bless them. They make a living at it. And I'm happy because those guys are great actors and they, when they go and talk to, to, to young people about a career, they're able to say that they've sustained a career, you know, but this is a personal choice of mine. Right. And so, At that point, I went into this audition, and I said to myself, man, I'm reading this guy, and I auditioned for the bad guy. Remember the bad guy in that story? Oh, Salazar, right? Yes. So I'm auditioning. Remember, I'm auditioning for Salazar. Bad guy hell.
0: Yeah. At that
1: point, because we come back to it again and again. (laughs) (laughs) Most every part that I've done well at, you know i auditioned for a worse part <laughs> yes against my against my uh, better feelings right but i said to myself let me go in and be an actor so i went in and i did something with it and i can't remember what it was and i think it was it's obvious this character is obvious so let me not make him obvious and that's the fun part of acting um and that's when I started uh enjoying auditions again. You know, I didn't feel like I was being judged. I didn't feel like they were looking at what have you done lately. But I was really just going to give them a little joy. You know, it wasn't tedious. It was going to be a little spark of something, even I was, if I wasn't right for the part. So that's when I started kind of enjoying auditions. So I went in on this one particularly, and I did that. I just had a good time, and I played it completely against what was written. And I think at that point they realized, well... He's not. He didn't give us that evil Salazar quality, but he gave us this, whoa, you don't know which side of the coin this guy is on. And at that point, I think they realized that he, I could play Gael um, because I never auditioned for Gael. I didn't even know who Gael was. Right. And at that point, they were already starting to be very secretive about scripts. Because uh, even by 2003, they were already starting to share information in the social media world that was kind of uh, uh, messing with intellectual property rights and all of that. So, you know what I mean? There was leakage happening already in the industry where people were sharing scripts, uh, story ideas, you know. And, And so I think they weren't letting actors read scripts. They weren't letting us look at characters other than what we were auditioning for. And I remember when I was working on 24, we didn't know what was going to happen two or three scripts down the line. We had to kind of intuit, you know, which is very difficult for an actor because when you're doing a, you know, even a two or three episode arc, you want to know where you're going because you kind of tailor your, what you're doing initially with the narrative to this. And if you don't know, then every episode you're going to go balls out because you don't know if you're going to be back for the next scene, next episode, you know? So it's, it's kind of difficult in this, in this new world to kind of deal with it that way, but that's, it was already happening in 2003. So I didn't know once I got on the show where Gael was going. It was interesting. Uh, I just had to keep guessing. And the same thing happened when I did Dexter. When I did Dexter, I, I didn't know who that character was. I didn't know where he was going. I was only assuming Because I knew the show, you know, and that's another thing is now you don't have to be a fan of every show. Before, you used to have to at least watch every show so that you knew what was happening. The style, you know, all of that. When, When, you know, when Hill Street Blues came out and they were shooting it in that weird kind of style, you had to kind of know because as an actor, you have to see what's on camera, what's not, the delivery, all of that. And so I think it, in that sense, you become a, a, a student of the game just because. Uh, and so, again, having gone through all of that, I started going to auditions playing, uh, having fun. And I think that's where I got lucky and got something like I.L., which, think about it, wound up having not only was he a cooler character than Salazar, hello, mm-hmm. but he had a multi episode arc, which means yeah. that my. Staying true to my uh, beliefs, I wound up getting a couple of more checks, you know. And as an actor, it's wonderful uh, to get a character that even though he doesn't – he's not the main dude, he gets a check for just hanging around, you know. Right. I did fear The Walking Dead. It was the same thing. They kept coming to me. You know, in, in the fear – in The Walking Dead world, there's only two types of characters. There's victims and there's perpetrators. <laughs> And the zombies were all over the place. So, you know, so I, you know, they kept coming to me and I kept, unfortunately, turning it down. And it always, it always sucks because around the first of the month, you're going, man, I should have just swallowed my pride. (laughs) (laughs) But other than that, you know, uh, I kept turning stuff down. So then because of that, several months later they came back to me with a character that wound up becoming like one of the most compassionate characters in the zombie world in fear of the walking dead uh and so by holding again true to my beliefs and suffering for it probably uh it wound up becoming this not only was he a great well-written character but it wound up, he wound up living and hanging on till the end of the season. So I got another few checks out of it. Whereas the original guy, got killed after a couple of episodes because he was the heavy of that first part of the narrative. So, uh, uh, and again, you don't know these things, but you just kind of hope that if you stay true to your heart, that then you can have something back to look to look on. And I think at fifty-seven. I see the future, and I'm like, man, you know, how long am I going to ride this train? You know, ten years from now, there's going to be ageism. You know, ten years from now, I'm not going to be able to do the things that I'm doing now, even though I probably can. I mean, I was working with, you know, Ruben Blades on Fear the Walking Dead, and he was doing the same stuff I was, and you know, he was pushing sixty-three, and I was like, incredible, Ruben, and he was about to go on tour with his band, so I was like, okay, that's where I want to be. But I also realized that, you know, I also wanted to be in a position where I'm not having to work so hard, where I can direct, where I can produce, where I can control the executive decisions of what projects get greenlit. Uh, My brother, James Borrego, is the film teacher at the local college here in San Antonio, Texas, San Antonio College. Uh, But it's because of the years he grew up with me, not only the college education he's had, uh, he studied at the University of Texas Film School where Robert Rodriguez studied for a while. He was with me in several film productions, uh, not only as a PA, but he had his, uh, SAG card for a while when, when I was starting out as an actor, you know, uh, he was in Lone Star, John Sayles' film, Lone Star, uh, uh, Heaven, what was it? Heaven Can Wait, which used to film here for a while with John Snyder and, uh, Ricardo Montalban. Hmm. That used to shoot here in San Antonio, Texas. And so my brother, who was here as a young actor, wound up working on the film, and still gets residuals from SAG. (laughs) He went on to not rest on his laurels and went on and got educated in film. I wound up getting his master's at the local university here where he's a producer, and now he's the film teacher. So what do we do is we create a 501C3 called Cena Studio San Antonio, which formalizes all the stuff that I do anyway, which is to teach these kids what I want them to learn. And it's in my neighborhood. It's, you know, uh, the, 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 the youth that I believe needs to know this information. Um, and between us both, we try to constantly teach the idea of the cultural narrative and about educational skill. Uh, between those two things is, is what I've based my entire career on. I've never only said, Uh, I'm an actor, even though that's my biggest skill. You know, I always say I'm an artist. Uh, And that's only to say that I'm a student of all of it. I'm a student of how this works. You know, now in the last 15 years, I've been really trying to learn not only about film production, but film distribution. How does it get out there? You know, how do you sell it? How do you get it? I've, I've worked on several films where they were incredible. they won Academy. Like I said, they could have won Academy Awards, but because they didn't have the political backing of the time, because they didn't have uh the sign of the times, because they didn't have uh, the budgets, they were squashed, and they never got to see the light of day. You know, the first film I did, the second film I did with Benjamin Bratt, still one of the best films I've ever worked on, Peter Bratt, uh, never got seen. Hmm. And it's out there. They've got the rights to it, but, you know, it's been 17, 18 years for them. So for them, it's it's an old film. You know, they're on to their next project. And But it's a project that when I look at it, and again, I'm the lead in it, so I'm kind of biased. But when I look at the people in the pedigree that worked on it, uh, you know, me, Benjamin, uh, the people that were in that film, I just go, oh, my God. Why isn't this film seen? It could be streaming and it deals with issues that we're dealing with now. Cultural inequity, uh, you know, the racial history of our country, you know, but in a beautiful, entertaining, narrative, cinematic way, Peter Brad is, you know, an underrated auteur, film auteur. If you look at his uh, uh, documentary, Dolores, uh, Dolores Huerta, you know, if you look at La Mission, look up La, La Mission, Benjamin Bratt could have won Academy Awards. You know, that year he should have been nominated for that performance. But it was such an independent film that it wasn't even bought by a Hollywood distributor. So even though they made their money back, it never it was never widely publicized. So we live on in that independent cultural world, you know, but these are the things that I celebrate. Follow me home. Never got seen, but I celebrate it. I know that it's there. I know that narrative. As a matter of fact, I think uh, Yale and Harvard used to use it for their uh, uh, cultural narrative education classes. It was, part of their, uh, it was part of their curriculum for a while. So it's, it's got critical uh, – a, a film that I worked on that was supposed to be entertaining, that was you know supposed to get out to my public and my fans – wound up never getting seen and yet impacting in some way, shape, or other.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But Jesse, this, this was fantastic. I really appreciate all your time today. Uh, Phoenix, Oregon, March 20th. Everyone go see it. Hopefully it's in a town near you. And much success with the movie.
1: Thanks. I mean, ultimately think about it. Even if uh, you don't catch it in the screens, eventually it's it's going to stream. So... That's the whole brave new world, and again, it's exciting for someone like me who's lived off of uh, lived off of the ability uh, to tell the story, to tell the universal human story. So now it's uh, you know the world is my oyster, but we just got to keep sharing that humanity, and I think storytelling is the way to do it, and you mm-hmm. know, and cinema is so impactful visually, and that's ultimately where uh, where I think uh, my best work is, and will live on forever
0: and a special thanks to jesse for joining me today phoenix oregon comes out march 20th go check it out hopefully it's in the theater near you if you want to follow him on twitter he's at jesse Barrego. if you have a guest suggestion hit me up on twitter at the First one nine be sure to like the page of living my youth on facebook you can also hit me up on there go to itunes check out all the past episodes we've had while you're there please rate and review the show. I really appreciate the reviews. If you don't have iTunes, not a problem. The show's on SoundCloud. It's also on Podbean. And go to livingmyyouth.threadless.com for all your merchandise, T-shirts, hoodies, phone cases, onesies. It's all on there. A new episode comes out every Wednesday, maybe Thursday. And we'll see you next week.